Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Calling All Stations, which aims to bring you up to date with all the major issues in the transport world. This week, the big story was the keynote speech given by Mark Harper, the Transport Secretary, on what we could expect from the forthcoming reforms to the rail industry. So, in a break from our usual format, I thought I'd discuss the speech and the future of the rail industry with my friend and editor of Rail Magazine, Nigel Harris, who has been covering and writing about these issues for even longer than I have. So, Nigel, welcome to Calling All Stations, and thank you for coming on the show. Let's start off with a little bit of history, as this reform process stretches back to May 2018. What exactly happened then? Well, thanks for the invitation, Christian. Good to be here. Yes, yes, we are friends, and I've been doing this for 28 years now, which I can't quite believe, but there you go. Well, the, the timetables, as, uh, as you know, and many of your listeners will know, uh, changed twice a year in May and December. And in the t May timetable change, there was utter chaos. It did not work. The service collapsed in the southeast and in northern England um, as a result of many factors. Um, there was late sort of arrival of transferred trains in the north, which meant that um, they didn't have the rolling stock to do it. But it, it was, it was a, a final collapse of a system which had been creaking um, certainly since the West Coast franchise competition collapse of, of, of 2012. And it was something which, I don't want to sound too smug, but which I saw coming a long time ago. In, May, in 2004, the rail review conducted by Alistair Darling, who was then Transport Secretary, when he got it finished and it was published, he said, what do you think? And I said, I think you've nationalised blame. He said, how do you mean? I said, because sooner or later there will be an almighty um, I didn't actually say screw up I said something else but I won't repeat that here on uh, on Radio Walmart um, I said there will be an um, almighty screw up and because there is no body of specialists between the government and the industry to provide political protection distance um, and all those other things the the blame for whatever it is has gone wrong. I said it might be an, a, a train accident, but actually I doubt it. I said it's going to be a political or financial thing. We'll just keep defaulting upwards until it lands on the Secretary of State's desk because there will be nowhere else for it to go. Um, and that's what happened in May 2018 uh, when Chris Grayling happened to be the one holding the parcel when the music stopped. And I don't know whether you remember it, but there was one of those sort of progress diagrams that was doing the rounds at the time. I tweeted it a few times, which said this has happened. You could go one way or the other. And wherever you started on these multiplicity of routes, you always ended up at the Secretary of State's desk. <laughs> he was, he was running everything, basically. basically. Well, there was nowhere else for that blame to go. I mean, in the 1950s, after nationalisation, it would have been the British Transport Commission. After 1964, it would have been the British Railways Board. After privatisation, there was nothing, which led to the formation by Prescott of the Strategic Rail Authority, firstly under Sir Alistair Morton and then Richard Bowker, of, of blessed memory. Um, after Darling abolished the SRA, there was nowhere for blame to go but the Secretary of State's desk. That happened to Chris Grayling about the timetable collapse, which in due course triggered the Williams Review. And interestingly, as an aside, uh, you were there the other night for um, Harper's speech. 
who referenced Keith Williams and his report several times. Not once did the name Grant Shapps pass his lips, who, because Shapps appended his name to it, didn't he? The themes which emerged from it, and which, which were in the finished report, um, really reference back to what I was just saying, and which I'd, I told the Secretary of State in a meeting I had with him last week in advance of the Bradshaw speech, that the railways have, have, have never functioned perfectly, but they did function after a fashion during those times when we had a body of specialists between the uh, the government and the railway, um, the BT, British Transport Commission, the 50s, BRB after 64, then the SRA. Um, but without that a body of specialists there, whether you want to call it a guiding mind or whatever, then there's only the DFT, and that's where all the blame ends up. And of course, the Williams report um, very clearly recommended that the DFT step back, stop micromanaging and that a new body to sit between the government and the railway, Great British Railways, should be established. Now when you consider some of the people involved that was probably always going to be the case. We had Boris Johnson as Prime Minister and we had Peter Hendy as Chair in Network Rail. Now the way London works is, you know, the Mayor tells the Transport Commissioner what kind of bus and tube network he wants and what the budget is and the Commissioner goes away and does it and then either gets a knighthood or the sack according to whether he gets it right or wrong. Well GBR is that writ large so it is no surprise that Williams suggested that or that Boris Johnson as PM recognised the benefits because he had worked exactly that system in principle in London over two terms with Peter Hendy as um, as Transport Commissioner. The, the DFT and the Treasury between them um, were largely responsible for the collapse of the franchising system because of the tariff. Franchising as a, in principle there's no reason why it shouldn't work providing that the, the deals, the franchises, are intelligently drawn up to benefit the, those setting the franchises, those who operate them and those who pay for it all through tickets or taxes, the passengers. And of course we had a long period where the franchises were used as a cash cow for the government um, and, and it caused terrible pain, you know. We saw the East Coast franchise collapse under the weight of its own ridiculousness when VTEC were running it. And, and that was entirely down to the way that it was a ludicrous agreement. If it had been a decent agreement then it probably still would be in place, but it, it, it required Virgin Trains each East Coast to grow its income 10% compound every year. Now if you and I had gone to the bank, Christian, with a really good idea for the business and, and, and they'd said, give us the headlines, and we said, well, we'll have to grow our revenues 10% compound every year, we'd have been back in the street before you could have said mortgage. Once you were a, a, an owning group and you, you, you were in the game, then when you put a bid in, you had to put a bid in that was likely to win, otherwise you lost up to what, 10 million pounds worth of bidding costs. And in the case of um, VT, VTEC, uh, Virgin had already performed miracles on the West Coast Main Line. I remember Branson saying to me at a breakfast years ago in advance of the Pendolinos coming, you know, Nigel said, to make this work, we have to, on the West Coast, we have to double the passengers from 15 to 30 million um, and I thought yeah right but of course they did it and they made it work with a combination of Branson and Souter and new trains and, and all the rest of it and so 
they could reasonably have said, we've done it once before, we're going to do it again. Um, but, you know, it was a diff different times by then, and what was asked of them in terms of premiums to the government was just ludicrous. And then, of course, we get to 2012, and we had the Virgin West Coast franchise, when Theresa Villiers was there, collapse, and that was when the franchise system really started to... Uh, to implode on itself, it was a, it was a long, slow death thereafter. But you know, franchises and concessions work very well, providing everybody you know does a sensible deal for them and everybody around them. And but we have never found the sweet spot between government rail, government and railway, where the government gets the railway it wants at the right price. Those who are operating it make a fair but not excessive living and the passengers get reasonable fares. We have never found that sweet spot. We are still looking for that. And of course, we have to discuss COVID, which put a dagger in the heart of franchising. Yes, it did. I mean, what the uh, 2012 collapse of the West Coast franchise started, COVID very definitely finished. You know, overnight, passenger volumes collapsed by not 95% across the country. The government sh crashed the economy. And so all the franchise deals were in place. There's no way the franchise holders could keep up their end of the deal because there were no passengers to carry around to carry the risk of revenue for. Um, since then, we've had a, a, a series of, some would say, increasingly dodgy deals from the from the DFT, which is contracts for run for running the road. Just as you, if you've got a gardener or you pay a decorator, uh, people and a lot of journalists, regrettably still talk about the TPE franchise. They ceased to exist in March 2020. Um, what we've got now are what were the franchise uh, operators being paid a very small fee of about one and a half percent simply to operate the trains with every pound of fair revenue being handed over to the Treasury. These are not uh, franchises, they're not concessionaires, uh, but of course the language tends to stick and you you, like me, will have seen endless news reports this last couple of weeks saying TPE ought to be stripped, favourite word of media, of its franchise. Well, that disappeared in March 2020. What is wrong with the current situation and how has it contributed to the chaos on the railways? Because, well, there are many There has been some management incompetence within the operating companies. You, you would be foolish to, to deny that. There's Avanti, there's TPE, there's, there's various operators have had various problems, some of them self-inflicted. They're the two that are best known. But let's just stick with Avanti for the time being. Um, the, the downs, one of the many downsides of what's happening at the minute is the government pays that pays Avanti and the other operators this sliver of a fee to operate the trains, but they are micromanaged from Great Minster House by armies of civil servants. The last time I talked to a senior Avanti um, West Coast manager about this subject, I was gobsmacked, if one is permitted to say that on Radio <laughs> Walmart, I was gobsmacked, I'll say it again in that case then, to, to be told that no fewer than 27 officials are monitoring every breath that that company takes and they can do nothing 
without it being signed off by a civil servant. There is no flexibility or, or even reasonable room for management. Now, I talked to somebody in the fringes of the um, Harper meeting the other day who used to be a franchise manager, um, I think at, at Opera, and eventually at the SRA, and he said, me and, us and an assistant used to be responsible for the East Coast. How they managed to find 27 people to breathe down the neck of Avanti West Coast. He said, we can't even blow our nose. But he didn't say blow our nose, he used a euphemism for breaking wind. <laughs> he said, without permission from somebody at GMH. Now, that throttles any kind of reasonable management. Um, and so that's a big reason for difficulties right across the network. The other one is probably one of the biggest things that Harper said the other night he was going to put right and that's this ludicrous business that whilst all the revenue goes to the Treasury the DFT remains responsible for costs so you've got costs and revenues managed separately. Well none of us can do that you couldn't do it Christian as just running your life you need to know what you, you earn and you need to know what your outgoings are for your council tax or your mortgage or your car or your, you know, and government departments have to and the railway has to, but it's been forbidden from doing so under the model that Shaps came up with, that these two things are managed separately. And it's coming, there are ludicrous outcomes. I, in advance of the meeting I had with Harper last Thursday morning, I talked to a lot of people out in the industry and in amongst the regulators. And whilst I won't tell you which TOC managing director this was, this is a true story. He said, you've got to get him on this costs and, and revenues thing. He said, we, went, we, we have a scheme which, you know, would make the railway better in terms of service. And we are very confident, we've done all the sums, that it will raise three million pounds. However, he said, to do that, it needs a million pounds worth of investment. And the DFT just said absolutely not because they own all the costs and they're under the Treasury cosh, as we all know, to just minimise costs. The Treasury doesn't give the flying proverbial about passengers or growth or anything else. All they care about is spending as little as possible and that has been passed on to the DFT. So that scheme, which would have raised a net two million quid, was trash because the DFT would not sanction the million pounds of spending so I didn't say where it was or who it was but I asked Harper to his face I said what's your reaction to that he said as you've told that to me Nigel he said that is a no-brainer and he made a very similar point during his speech he didn't use those numbers but he actually said in what comes to one of the questions it might even have been to mine I'll have to listen to the recording that you know if if he could spend a pound to earn five then that's what was going to happen in future now that shift in thinking is the most important thing that came out that's, that, that seems to be emerging at the minute because if you put all that together you've got people running the railways who are not only not incentivized to do better for the passenger they are actually disincentivized because the answer is always no if it involves spending even a pound or a penny regardless of how much it would raise and I mean again I said I made the comment to Harper and his spabs personally that um, that was just ludicrous. We needed to be growing uh, the railway and growing the number of passengers, not disincentivising it. So, uh, Nigel, what positives can you take uh, from Harper's speech 
I think when I saw you afterwards, you felt that it was clearly showing that progress was being made. I think it's making very significant prog progress. And I think a lot of people in the room felt that. I talked to one managing director outside as we walked for a cab later on after our sort of nibbles and whatnot. Um, and he actually said, that's actually made my week because it, and it's things like that reconnection of P&L, profit and loss, the thing we've just talked about, the, the business about costs and revenues, what we seem to be seeing is a return. The word that was missing before costs was the word net. Uh, like that net cost of that three million revenue was one million and yet they wouldn't spend it. Now as long as you've got that mindset in place, the railway is not only not only going to get anywhere, it is doomed. You know, it needs to have the flexibility to run extra services here and there. Um, I mean, I'll give you another example that I'm very closely connected with, as you'll appreciate. Mm -hmm. um, that again, um, the Secretary of State said, well, that just doesn't make sense. Our rail live show in June, um, three, like two, three years ago, um, Great Western came to us, um, Mark Hopwood. What Mark suggested, and this, this is the sort of thinking the railway is desperate for, but which currently is stamped on by the system. Mark said, look, why don't I run four shuttles in each day from Worcester, because you can get to Worcester from anywhere, and then you know, I'll charge a fare and run four shuttles in. And we want to do that because each day of the show we've got about 3,000 cars in a field and that's a bad look for a rail show. And we're all set to make, to make that happen. Ian Prosser at ORR had come up with a really good way of allowing drivers who don't know that two miles of track, single track from Honeybourne into Longmaston to sign for it as, you know, it's only sort of walking pace, 10 miles an hour. Everything was in place and that was the year that the Hitachi trains had all those bogey cracks. So Great Western couldn't do it, it wiped their fleet out. So this year um, I approached Mark and said can we resurrect your idea from a couple of years ago about the shuttles and he said we can't. I said why is that? He said because of this costs and revenues thing. However I look at it, whether it's cost of the, the trains, the drivers wages, track access, I carry a cost for running those four trains but even if I charge a fare all that money will go to the Treasury so as it stands the DFT will say no you can't spend any more money you can't do them so those four extra trains each day for Interrail Live which would grow the market look good for railways and all the rest it's a beautiful case study of what's happening right across the network um, now Harper and Hugh Merriman in particular both thought this was a ludicrous and are looking into finding a way to because when I talked to Mark he actually said you're going to have to talk to Pete Wilkinson to get special dispensation for us now that struck me as balmy and I did actually say to one of the spads when I saw Harper last week why am I sitting in the Secretary of State's office asking the SOS himself to allow an MD to do what it's an MD's job to do and as a result of that conversation, there was a wonderful line in, in the Secretary of State's speech the other night where he said, it's about time we let managing directors both manage and direct. Um, now, if, we, if there's only one thing came out of all this, it was that, it would be transformative. And so keep it, we are looking at trying to get those shuttles going because if so, that will breach this, um, this ridiculous 
Chinese wall between revenues and costs which has been holding the railway back so much and will allow thinking managers to recognise, I mean Steve White at South Eastern said Nigel we, we know our markets locally, we know where we could either run some extra trains or do something which would benefit the railway and its passengers but at the moment we can't because it would represent a cost so the DFT won't let us do it because there's no, it's just cost. I'd agree with much of that, Nigel, but there was a lot in the speech about encouraging the private sector, and I don't see how you can do that without a return to franchising. Well, maybe that would be the case. You wouldn't have to transfer too much risk or go the franchising route. One, another important point that came out, it won't be one size fits all. I think there'll be very different contracts offered for the, the main lines and then some of the more regional routes. Um, and there are many ways of doing it. I mean, concessions work well, providing um, the client and the concessionaire understand what they're doing and who has the relationship with the customer. See, it works very well on the London Overground, doesn't it? But that's because, you know, TfL is a great client, which is why <laughs> you need the bot takes us right back to the start. You need a body between the government and the railway that can do that. And that's, call it GBR, call it Network Rail, call it what you like, but that's what it needs. A body to say to the DFT, what sort of railway do you want and how much money have you got for it? And then they'll do it because there are people in the industry. That room the other night, Christian, was full of people who know exactly how to put these kind of deals together. And it doesn't require a change in legislation for them to do that. It requires the DFT and the Secretary of State to say, there's GBR, we are transferring the, um, the DFT's um, negotiation powers to come up with passenger contracts to them. And all that the Secretary of State is then required to do is sign it off when it's done. And of course, he would also specify what sort of deal it was that you want for those different parts of the country. Um, it's not only the private sector that can do these things, but the private sector tends to have lots of people of the right mindset and skills to do it. Back in the 1990s, we had large groups of XBR people who had um, worked on the railway for maybe 20 which I, years. Which I mentioned before, before yes. yes. Yeah, but we haven't got them now. It's not a case of all those people either retired or have gone, or the ones that are still around with any experience are in the... Um, in the uh, in, in in what were the franchises and the owning groups, they're the people who know how to run a railway, and we need to make use of that expertise and develop it, and more to the point, get some management training schemes in, so we start to generate a new generation. So just to round up, Nigel, you end up on an optimistic note for 2023. To quote a certain Tony Blair, are things just going to get better this year? Providing that they do genuinely bring P&L back together and that they do let managing directors manage and direct and give them flexibility to manage their, their operations at ground level for the benefit of the passenger and the taxpayer, then it is that this is not complicated, it can be done. But these people need to have the government boot taken off the back of their heads and they can do effectively what people like Christopher Garner and Shooter did in the 90s which is to you know, employ people of the right flair and imagination to take advantage of the opportunities that are there and manage them at the ground level, which is the best place to do it. You cannot run railways from Great Minster House, nor can you cut your way to success. Thank you very much, Nigel. That was excellent. And I'll definitely catch up with you again in a future podcast. 
And of course, I'll continue writing my column for Rail Magazine. I think I've reached number 750 so far. As for my note from the departure lounge, I leave you with a strange tale of the disappearing British Rail sandwich. In his speech, Harper mentioned that rail nationalisation was like a soggy British rail sandwich, backward-looking and unfit for consumption in the 21st century. At the end of the meeting, I went up to him and presented him with a copy of my book on BR and said, this is to show that BR was rather more than its sandwiches, and I expressed disappointment that he used that old trope. He replied that there had been a discussion about it, but that he had decided to go ahead with it. Then comes the killer point. The next day, the department sent out what it called a tr exact a transcription of the speech exactly as it was delivered. Only it wasn't. There was no mention of BR sandwiches, soggy or otherwise, or indeed of Labour's plans for renationalisation. While I'm very happy that Harper has ditched the sandwich cliché, there, there is a more serious point here. Government departments seem to be becoming rather like Orwell's Department of Truth. Thank you for listening to sorry thank you for listening calling all stations is a cogitamus limited production if you want to make sure you hear about further episodes do follow us on whatever platform you use and if there are any issues you'd like us to raise do email me on christian.wellmar@gmail.com <laughs>